This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Monday. Daphna, how you been? Uh, good. <laughs> Love doing board post call, but <laughs> You're doing board review post call. I mean, that's like the Sorry. epitome of hard work. <laughs> and I do feel like uh, board board review questions post call count double, right? You think everything post call counts double? If you exercise and you run five miles, like you ran ten. Um, everything, if everything. only. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's my. Uh, that's my. Uh, um, that's my. My reality field. That's how I see things. Um, yeah. So we're we finished cardiology. I mean, we finished. We did a week's worth of cardiology question, and now right. we're moving on to. Um, now we're moving on to neurology. This is this is a fun topic. I have much less of a grasp on neurology as I did on the other. So it's going to be fun to just like. Yeah, I think we've got some good topics. It's going to be fun. Yeah, yeah, it will. Um, anything else that we need to talk about? Not really. Um, thank you to everybody for the engagement. Um, I'm very happy that this is helpful to other people. And yeah. what's interesting to me is that I, I'm learning off of my own notes things sure. that I didn't know. <laughs> and I was like, I went to the boards and I didn't know these things. How How come? <laughs> I, wrote I feel down. that way every time I have to restudy something that I've already studied, you know, like it's, it's, didn't more, I know this already? It's even more <laughs> painful when it's something you actually wrote. Like I look at my handwriting and I'm like, I wrote that. Like I have no <laughs> recollection. Anyway. Uh, all right. So you're, you're starting us off neurology question one, right? That's right. So let's just get into it. Question one, a female infant in the newborn nursery has weakness of her upper and lower left-sided facial muscles with an asymmetric cry and inability to close her left eye completely. Of the following, the most likely clinical course of this infant's facial nerve palsy is A, complete recovery in one to three weeks, B, complete recovery in two to three months, C, complete recovery in six to nine months, D, complete recovery in one year, E, incomplete recovery. Yeah, I was excited when I read this question because as the vignette describes the baby, I'm like, yes, facial yes, nerve palsy. Yes, I know what it is. Facial nerve palsy. And then the question is like, how long does it take for facial nerve palsy to recover? Interesting, <laughs> That's right. Interestingly enough, my first, one of the first few uh, deliveries I attended as a resident by myself mm was a baby with facial nerve palsy. And I just like, sure. I was like, my God, like the first few deliveries I go to, this kid has a stroke. That's it. Like, what am I supposed to do? So um, I have a vivid memory of that delivery where the kid's face is, is like, like the kid's crying and it's asymmetrical. And it's like, holy shit. That's right. Um, so anyway, the bottom line is I didn't know uh, what is the recovery time. Um, I did. So I did know, um, I did know that you could recover from, from cranial nerve seven palsy, I didn't think it was a year. I didn't think it was six to nine months, but I was hesitating between one to three weeks versus two to three months. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I picked two to three months. And um, yeah, 
That was a good guess. That was pure, yeah, it was. <laughs> that that would be a potentially reasonable answer for, say, a brachial plexus injury. Um, so the brachial plexus injuries tend to take weeks to months to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the terms of facial nerve palsy, actually, we would expect complete recovery in about one to three weeks, which is great that we can tell parents that in the delivery room. And so this is kind of just one of those just uh, rote memorization questions. But I think we can talk a little bit about facial nerve palsy, particularly the risk factors associated with that. And they are forceps delivery, um, a baby who's large for gestational age, specifically birth weight of 3,500 grams or more. Um, and if mom is a primip, so this is the first delivery. Um, and so in general, um, we expect babies to have complete resolution in a pretty uh, short amount of time. Okay. Should we go to next question number two? Yeah. Okay. So question number two. Dr. Barbo, you have a female infant born at 39 weeks gestation that has perinatal depression, requires resuscitation in the delivery room. Upon admission to the neonatal intensive care unit, she has apnea, respiratory failure, and requires intubation. Her neurological examination demonstrates an intact papillary and oculomotor response, oculomotor response, hypotonia, minimal movement, and a decreased level of consciousness. At... 12 hours of age, she has clinical seizures. Suspecting focal or multifocal cerebral ischemia, the most likely affected vessel is choice A, the left and right middle cerebral arteries, choice B, the left middle cerebral artery, choice C, the right middle cerebral artery, choice D, the superior sagittal sinus, and E, the vein of Galen. So, I I mean, I find neonatal strokes to be so interesting. And I know that um, the middle cerebral artery, uh, arteries, are the most commonly affected, um, for sure. The vast majority of of neonatal strokes occur in the MCAs. Um, But for some reason, I have a hard time remembering which one is more common. Um, And so I... I picked B, left middle cerebral artery, um, but that was guess (laughs) compared to the right middle cerebral artery. Okay, so you are correct. B is the right answer. It's the left MCA. Um, So in the context of a neonatal stroke, the most commonly affected vessel is the the middle cerebral artery. And when you're looking at the occurrence of strokes in the different types of middle cerebral arteries, the way it works is that left is the most prevalent with 60%, right is second with 20%, and bilateral is 10%. Bilateral kind of makes sense, right? Because to have like bilateral MCA stroke seems like an odd uh, thing for, for something like that to happen. So it can make sense that it would be the least likely. Now, the question you may ask yourself is then why left and not right? And I did some digging as to why that would happen. And it basically ends up being related to the stream of blood and mm-hmm. how the PFO directs blood towards the left MCA preferentially. Okay. Um, now, I'm not going to go into too much details because I don't think I can give you much more 
than than that in terms of how the the stream actually makes sense and in how it actually goes into the uh, the left MCA. But this is the reason. It's because um, the PFO as blood streams through the PFO, it tends to uh, preferentially go into the left uh, MCA. Okay. Okay. Now. So uh, I I'm. Do you have a mnemonic? <laughs> I do not. It's it's left first. I mean, the way I think about it is that now that I understand that the PFO is responsible, yeah. I'm assuming it's to stream the blood into the left side so that the the, the blood can go into the le- the aorta, which is like a left sided type of arch. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm thinking left to, to, towards the aorta, towards the left, left MCAM. That's the way I remember it. It's terrible, but whatever. No, I think that makes sense. Um, I'm going to remember that the left MCA left more babies with a stroke <laughs> sounds like a plan the one thing i did want to mention too is that at some point in the in the answer choices you had um the superior sagittal sinus yeah um so so that tends to be um the, the sagittal sinus tends to be involved in like thrombosis and and hyperviscosity um so that's not something that's really uh, difficult to rule out the vein of galen same thing it's mostly Usually, vein of gill and stuff is vein of gill malformation, and the presentation would not really be strokey with with seizures. It would be more like um, congenital uh, congestive heart failure, hydrocephalus, uh, but not really that presentation. So that's why these these are out. Okay, yeah, that's really Sounds it. You want, good. Should we do one more? Yeah, let's do question five. Okay. After referral to an ophthalmologist for photophobia and excessive tearing, a one-month-old infant is diagnosed with congenital glaucoma. Which of the following disorders is associated with congenital glaucoma? Uh, Your answer choices. Uh, A, Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. B, Hurler syndrome. C, Marfan syndrome. D, Sturge-Weber syndrome. Or E, tuberous sclerosis. Yeah, these are oh, these these um, yeah, these these genetic questions and these genetic syndrome questions are are very tough for me. Um, I did uh, pick the answer of Sturge Weber because I had remembered that Sturge Weber is the port wine stain, mm-hmm. and the port wine stain sometimes uh, covers over um, the orbit and the eye, and so I remember that they they could have glaucoma. Now, uh, was I a hundred percent sure that the others? Uh, were not really associated with congenital glaucoma, not really. So anyway, I picked Sturge Weber because I remembered something vaguely about the glaucoma. But yeah, so that's absolutely right. So so Sturge Weber syndrome is certainly associated with glaucoma. All of these um, syndromes are associated with some sort of ocular finding. Okay. So let's. Let's briefly review Sturge-Weber syndrome again. Um, like you said, Sturge-Weber syndrome has that port wine stain. Um, and if it includes the forehead, the eye, and the maxillary area, there's almost a 50% chance of glaucoma. Um, and Sturge-Weber syndrome in general is associated with conge- congenital glaucoma in 30 to 70% of affected individuals. So really a, a, a high proportion of, of glaucoma. Other things that are associated with glaucoma are neurofibromatosis, retinoblastoma, homocystinuria, trisomy 21, congenital rubella, remember that one, and Stickler syndrome, and long-term exposure to corticosteroids. 
But let's talk about some of these other disorders. So back with Wiedemann syndrome um, is most commonly the hallmark associated with that is hemihypertrophy. And I remember that back with Wiedemann means one side is wider. So that's how I remember Beckwith Wiedemann. Um, and to that point, the babies tend to be LGA. Um, they can have macroglossia. So everything is wider than expected. Um, Even the, the name feels big. It's like Beckwith Wiedemann. It's large. It? <laughs> big wide syndrome. That's what I that's think. Right. Beckwith Wiedemann syndrome. Um, but those babies have hypoglycemia in infancy related to hyperinsulinism. Um, some of the other things that come up in clinical kind of case scenarios are that these characteristic ear, pet, ear pits or tags. Uh -huh. um, they can be associated with emphalocele, uh, cardiomyopathy, Wilms tumor, rhabdomyosarcoma, and hepatoblastoma. Um, and so certainly a baby with emphalocele and hypoglycemia, you should uh, be thinking about back with Wiedemann syndrome. Uh, it's usually uh, related to uh, problems in chromosome 11. Um, and so, um, and an eye finding that can be associated with Beckwith, uh, Beckwith Wiedemann syndrome is exophthalmos. So, Hurler syndrome, if you remember, that's one of our um, mucopolysaccharidoses. This is um, MPS type 1, which is a lysosomal storage disease. Um, Hurler syndrome specifically has a lot of skeletal abnormalities. So I was always taught to remember that the, the hurler, somebody who throws something might have skeletal abnormalities um, significant oh, cognitive impairment, heart disease, respiratory problems can have deafness and their characteristic eye finding is actually corneal clouding, but it's not glaucoma, um, because it's, um, the buildup um, of this byproduct. These babies typically have prominent foreheads, flattened nasal bridge, enlarged lips, tongue, and gums. So Marfan syndrome. I did um, remember the eye findings of Marfan. Let me not myself, sell myself short. I know like the, the, the dislocation of the lens. I remember, I That's remember right. that. That's right. That's right. And, you know, we don't think about Marfan that often in neonatology, but you had a baby we, we thought about Marfan in. Yeah. Um, and there's certainly an infantile form with early severe progression. Um, and there are some babies who have Marfan syndrome who, who, when you look back, had some characteristic findings. They tend to have long fingers and extremities. They can have joint laxity in the infantile form. They can um, have contractures, loose, redundant skin, very poor feeding at the hallmark Cardiac findings are prolapse of the mitral and tricuspid valves. Um, they can also have some skeletal findings like scoliosis. And like you said, it's the lens dislocation. That's really the primary ocular finding. Mm -hmm. That being said, some babies with Marfan syndrome, some people with Marfan syndrome do have glaucoma, but the hallmark really is this lens dislocation. And then we'll talk about tuberous sclerosis again, which we've talked about a few times in the last few weeks. Um, the earliest features are the hypomelanotic skin findings. So the tubers are found under the ash leaf trees, so the ash leaf spots. And they have rhabdomyomas, um, cortical tubers, and then similarly, they have retinal or optic nerve hamartomas. So that's their eye finding.
So the, the pearl was really that Sturge Webb syndrome, specifically if the Port Weinstein is found over the forehead, eye, and maxillary area, that they have uh, nearly a 50% chance of glaucoma. Yeah. Thank you so much, Stefan. That was helpful. Oh, I'm so glad. I think, <laughs> I, I think that's all we have time for today. That's right. We hope that we got your day started with uh, a solid three questions, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow morning. Bye. Bye, Daphna. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.